matters of the mind. Are you looking for answers, ideas, or just want someone to listen to you so you can vent? Join Dr. Peter Sacco as he discusses what matters most, issues that surround the mind. He gets to the heart of the matter when it comes to issues involving anger, depression, addictions, fear, anxiety, relationships, sex, abuse, bullying, and everything concerning you. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Welcome to Matters of the Mind, where everything in your mind matters to us each and every week. That would be me, uh, Peter Andrew Sacco, with my co-host and producer, Todd Miller. And so what that says, what is mattering most on my mind, it, it is so freaking cold out today. <laughs> That's the worst thing on your mind right now is the temperature. <laughs> uh, I guess it's a, it's a little bit of a diversion. I think you know what it is, Todd? After we had this exceptionally beautiful, long, hot weekend that down in the Niagara region, I'm old school, so I'm in Fahrenheit. We actually, you know, we were tipping out at about 85 to 87. It was beautiful, uh, uh, driving golf balls, gardening, the whole nine yards. And then it's like, are you kidding me today when, you know, I poked my head out the door? Almost like the groundhog wanting to go back in. You know, I... Uh Checked my Facebook feed first thing this morning, and there was a friend that lives a little bit further north in Ontario, and they actually got snow this morning. There was white stuff on the ground. May the 20th, folks, there was snow in Ontario. And that's the irony of it. Uh, for those that are just perennial, proverbial, obsessed gardeners like myself that love to live out there, play out there, and yes, folks, I have a fully functional rainforest that is in my backyard and I put in a lot of tropicals this weekend. General rule of thumb is once two four weekend comes, you are definitely safe from snow, frost, and all the elements. Tell that to Mother Nature. I saw your backyard. You've got a lot of hanging plants and things. Uh, it looks very tropical. We're, yeah, absolutely, Todd. I'm just getting to that point now where I am developing it, building it up. <clears throat> and yes, I am going to cheat probably this year and use that dreaded miracle grow <laughs> I, I call it cheating because i love to do it the all-natural way but after last year's frigid cold which by the way last year we were in toronto last week for a comic con the long weekend and todd we were all in long pants heavier coats it was freezing down on the waterfront yes uh, and uh you know we can't really complain. This year's been pretty good. And actually, we've got some news, too. We're uh, we're coming up to uh, Comic-Con in Niagara Falls in a couple of weeks. We're going to head down there as media and have some wonderful interviews. Absolutely, and definitely um, along with my booth, uh, which will feature both Matters of the Mind, uh, Listen Up Radio, Radio That Doesn't Suck, of course. Um, we're there with Niagara's Most Haunted, the TV series that I host. Uh, so definitely come out, and Todd will probably be grabbing some sound bites, and we'll be talking about the show there. And you can give your feedback as well if you'd like. And speaking of Toronto, Todd is in Toronto right now. I'm actually in Niagara Falls, but Todd is going to be joined momentarily by a tremendous guest who's in Toronto. Her name is Kimberly Moran. She's the president and CEO of what I think is one of the most amazing organizations in all of the world because it deals with children's mental health and she's with children's mental health ontario 
Met her a few weeks ago at a presentation she did for a, a board of directors that I belong, one of the member agencies, um, and just made such an impact with her own personal story, but just her passion for trying to improve mental health for children across Ontario uh, made a big impact. So we decided to have her in on the show and invite her and just have her share her story. So stay tuned. She's around the corner. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio at talk-radio.ca. The music you'll hear on Out of the Blue will be jazz for the most part. No specific styles or genres. Every piece of music is handpicked to deliver quality performances. Out of the Blue can be heard on rtds.ca, live Mondays 1 to 3 p.m., and encore performances Tuesday to Friday, anytime on demand. It's the true spirit of jazz, a touch of everything and then some. Thanks for listening. I'm Larry Green. Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco, and do you have technological rage? Oh yeah, the new rage of anger. Download my new book today, Technological Rage, on my website, www.petersacco.com, and learn what technological rage is and how it is sweeping people today, leading to online dating anger, texting anger, and social online networking forums. Hmm, did you ever think you might get angry texting? Facebooking or online dating, maybe you never thought it would happen to you, or maybe you know somebody that has this and you just need to understand it a little more. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us. And before we went to commercial break, we were talking about the awesome, exceptional guest we were going to have on our show. And she's going to join us now. And as we were talking about um, today, last week, the week before, this is Mental Health Month. So definitely, folks, make the difference. And we have with us now Kimberly Moran, who is the president and CEO of Children's Mental Health. Ontario, and she has been recognized as a leading advocate for children with a focus on mental health, and she brings more than 25 years of senior leadership experience in both the private and non-profit sectors. Hello, Kimberly. How are you? Hi. Thanks very much. I'm terrific today. So, I guess the very first place uh, to begin with is, can you tell us a little bit about um, this wonderful organization, Children's Mental Health Ontario, and how did you get involved in it? Well, Children's Mental Health Ontario is an organization that really advocates for uh, improving uh, the service delivery of children's mental health services across the province. It represents um, children's mental health centers, uh, almost a hundred of them across the province. And I got involved in this because it was a very personal issue. Uh, my daughter became very ill when she was 11, and we could not get the help that we needed from the system. And so, so because of that, it sort of impassioned me to get 
involved in 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 this area. Uh, when she was 11, um, she started to feel sad. And she'd been a very high-performing kid, doing well at school. Um, and, uh, you know, sad was sort of an odd thing to happen. And, you know, after we diligently checked, um, you know, schools and uh, she was active in gymnastics and looked at all those things, we didn't find anything that would cause a kid to be sad. So we went to our pediatrician and asked for help, and he ruled out sort of uh, physical issues. Um, and I remember whispering to him, I think it could be emotional. Had no idea where we were going to go with that. Uh, but it turned out he said, well, you know what, let me just refer you. Uh, I, we always mess this up. I'm just going to refer you. And, of course, we waited for service. Nobody called. Hmm. Nobody called. And she deteriorated pretty rapidly. Uh, we we uh, continued to badger him for help. We phoned uh, uh, community-based um, mental health centers, and we faced long wait times. We finally did get a call from where he referred us to, uh, which was in the hospital sector, and they had wait lists for services over a year as well. So she deteriorated very rapidly. She stopped going to school. She really isolated herself. There was clearly something wrong. And as parents, we were completely powerless. We couldn't get the help that we needed. Um, and finally, she ended up uh, trying to take her life. It's completely sad at 11 years old. Uh, she stopped eating and drinking, which is for an 11 year old sort of the only way they can think of and really is a cry for help. Um, and we ended up in an emergency room in our neighborhood. So, um, so Kimberly, I just want to interject because yep. for anybody listening, I just want to point this out that basically this for you, um, learning your mental health um, education was basically a very personal on basically what I call it baptism by fire that you are not a mental health practitioner by trade rather a chartered professional accountant who learned a lot about the mental health um, services not only the services but also disorders primarily depression based on your daughter's situation correct absolutely um, I you know I think that um, as an accountant uh, and being in private business for a long time running organizations you think in systems right you think about how to optimize systems whatever whatever area you're working in and for me it made no sense as I was going through why wouldn't the pediatrician know where to send me why would they allow a kid to become so depressed that we, they would end up in hospitals it just didn't make any sense to me and that's what motivated me to put up my hand to say, you know, I, I'm very interested in seeing if we can work out how we really build a system that works for kids and families, because the one we have now doesn't. There's a perception in Ontario that we have generally pretty good health services. You know, um, it's a perception. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, I've been to the Emerge for something that's gone wrong, and I'm in and out in a couple of hours, and other times I've waited 10. Mm -hmm. It's just the way it works. But there is this perception that when a mental health crisis occurs, it's pretty easy to get someone into treatment until you actually get up against that system. And then you realize, what do you mean there's a year waiting, you know, oh, there's a wait limit of a year for this service. What am I supposed to do for a year? And that's part of what your organization does is to raise the awareness that, that these red flags are going up saying, no, you, you can't have a crisis and just get it solved the same day. You cannot get services put in place the same day. Yeah, and I would say it, it probably even goes farther than that. When Once our daughter was in hospital, then they need treatment. Um, you know, a hospital is a great place for stabilizing a crisis. So triage, getting yeah, them in a, and assessed. It, but then, and then when you want treatment, though, 
you know, then you're back into wait times again. And so you'll find that families and kids talk about the fact that they'll go to emergency room and and come back out again a couple of days later and they're still uh, waiting for service. So um, you're right, we do have great acute care services and they're really important for kids with mental health issues. What we don't have is all the supporting services for them. Uh, well, it's funny that you mentioned that because my uh, stepson was recently diagnosed as being bipolar and he's 31 years old, so it really occurred later in life. But and it was the same thing where they stabilized them for a couple of days, got him feeling generally pretty good and then said, OK, well, we got to let you go. So he's back out in the real world. And, you know, they gave him a list of all these support groups and, and some of them don't start for months. Yeah. And it's like as a family, you're sitting there going, what are we going to do? So you have to sort of be, you know, the sole provider of care for them until they can get back into the system. That's right. And I think that the argument that we try to make to the government is that, you know, certainly the government has to spend their money wisely. And we've, we're all very clear there's no new money. We, we understand yep. all those things. But I think that uh, the argument that I look at from sort of my accounting background is, I think we could redeploy the money differently <laughs> and, you know, have a much better system of care. You know, when you think about it, mental health is a chronic disorder. It's not something like a broken arm that happens and then gets better and gets fixed. Yep. You know, most people with mental health issues and kids, it's about 20% of kids that have mental health issues. 12% of those that are very severe and chronic and persistent will likely will last until they're adults. Um, a system of care, if you do it properly, prevents kids from getting into the acute care sector, which is a lot more expensive. So the argument we try to build for the government is, listen, you know what? There's services out there that if you scaled them up, if you funded them properly, that we would reduce costs in other sectors. And we've we've been making that sort of return on investment argument because I think that we all have to be smart um, and we have to be mindful of the fiscal reality that the government faces. Um, and so, you know, it can't just be sort of a handout all the time. So we're very cognizant of that. Um, but I think that we can demonstrate on a, you know, a business case basis that it makes more sense to to provide the services um, across the continuum of care. So you need funding in hospitals for children and youth mental health. You need primary care doctors to understand what their position is within a continuum of care and funding for that. Same with child psychiatry but also the community sector services, which really provides the long-term support and care for these kids and, and, and the families, too. Um, I don't think we can forget that children live in families, um, and those families, I can tell you personally, having a kid with a mental health issue, and you know, from the sounds of it, mm -hmm. you've had the same with your uh, stepson, um, you need training as to how to really support these kids. Um, and we can be very effective caregivers um, sort of the unpaid, the unpaid uh, uh, lay psychologists and lay psychiatrists. That's right. Uh, we can be very effective and also help keep our kids out of expensive interventions in hospitals if we're trained properly as well. Right. So, Kimberly, I'm just I've been out of the loop with this in terms of actually being a private practitioner out in the real world and my involvement with Canadian Mental Health and other organizations. But one of the you know the most disturbing facts back in the day and stats show that the leading consumers of psychiatric services across North America are children 12 years of age and under. So with that said, I guess when we're looking at children's mental health, especially what you're doing in Ontario here, what is in it for the parents? Do you guys offer anything towards 
educating um, parents, educating adults in terms of, okay, why are all these mental health issues coming out? Why is there so many uh, higher rates of depression? Definitely, uh, we're seeing rates of anxiety disorders in kids. And even now, some people are asserting that we're actually seeing personality disorders starting in kids. Is there anything in place for parents to learn from? Well, I think that the, you've raised a couple of good issues. I think that there's a really good study coming out. We're hoping to see data in November, December, about called the Ontario Child Health Study out of McMaster, which is really going to talk about whether there's an increasing uh, uh, prevalence of these disorders in kids. So I think the jury's still out on whether you know we're really just there's because of a decrease in stigma, we're talking more about the issues or whether there's really an increase in prevalence. So I think we'll see the data probably November, December about that. With respect to support for families, absolutely, Children's Mental Health Centers do provide that. They both provide education to parents who, who really want to understand how to support their kid. They also provide another service is that when you have families that, that might be struggling with, um, say, addictions or other mental health problems themselves, sometimes... Um, you know, the, the social determinants of health can be a very, have a huge impact on families. Um, the the uh, Children's Mental Health Centers help the parents as well, help the families sort through the issues that might be impacting the kid as well. So there's, I would say there's two kinds of support for families. So I guess one of the interesting tenets of this all, and I used to see this back in the day when I was seeing patients, was the fact that a lot of times Parents didn't want to come to the conclusion or accept the fact that, hey, my kid actually has uh, some has a disorder here, possibly, you know, whether it even be an eating disorder all the way up to depression or anxiety disorder. Is there, in your opinion, then, is a stigma still with kids that parents don't want to accept the fact that, hey, um, my kid's got ADHD. I don't want my kid on drugs. I don't want my kid to be labeled. I don't want my kid red carded in schools to be seen as somebody that has a disease, so to speak. Does this still, this tendency exist in Ontario? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think any parent would have a normal reaction to, um, oh my, you know, trying to understand um, this problem that their child faces. Um, the fact that it's a chronic disorder. I mean, I think that if you had a child who had cancer, or you had a child who had um, some kind of neurodegenerative disease, I think that you'd have that initial reaction. So I think that typically, you know, parents take a while to have some acceptance about it. I would say that there's always been a stigma about mental health that, that really makes that harder and harder to really you know, deal with as a parent. But I think that that stigma is reducing. I think that a lot of public awareness campaigns have happened in the last number of years that really have decreased the stigma. So people aren't as nervous about speaking out uh, about it. Um, and that I think it's making it easier for people to accept um, that their child has these problems and not be so scared about it. Um, but, uh, but it is there, absolutely. It's funny. I, I lay everything bare in this show. I also have a, a seven-year-old who has uh, high-functioning autism, and uh, he's lucky because the school he goes to has realized and recognized that a vast percentage of their population is experiencing mental health 
challenges, especially autism. So they've got autism support groups within the school. They've got teachers that help out special EAs. And it's it's really wonderful. But in talking with other parents, as I'm also a board member of one of your member agencies, mm -hmm. it does not carry across the entire school system, unfortunately, whether that's a budgetary restraint or whether that's just a personnel issue because the principal at my son's school seems to be really aware of the issue and want to help. So that that is an, an incredible um, luck, you know, stroke of luck that my child ended up at that school and they've got such a great program. But I know what, what Dr. Sanko was asking was initially there was a, no, I can't, I, he can't have autism. You know, he's my little guy and he's, oh, but he doesn't like eye contact. Oh, okay, and he doesn't like hugging. So then you start going through the checklist and, and eventually get to the place where you go, yeah, he's got autism. Mm -hmm. And it's just a process to work through. I do think that different um, uh, cultures also have an impact on accepting it. In certain cultures, uh, mental health really is still uh, an issue that they don't want to deal with. So we've seen different um, issues based in culture that really have to be you know, addressed. And, and I'm sure they will over time. Yeah. So, Kimberly, let me ask you, I, I guess, do you see, um, I guess, a difference in the type of individual that comes in to utilize or seek out the services here now in Ontario since we are a tremendous melting pot? Because I know back in the day when I was involved with Canadian Mental Health, um, involved with and, and sitting on board uh, on various other boards for mental health services, that there were certain ethnicities would just not seek out the services um, because it, it just totally went against their belief system and their culture, what they were taught in the country. And then, in fact, you see it on the flip side where teachers would readily identify, hey, within the in, in a classroom, this kid's got something definitely wrong and it's beyond the culture. Does this still happen? Do you, do you see it? Or is it right across the board now that, okay, all cultures within Ontario definitely seek out services equally i don't think we have any data on that so i don't know that i can actually really respond properly to your question but i would say that in the children's mental health centers they um, get parents and caregivers and kids from all sort of walks of life and all kinds of diverse backgrounds so i think that they're set up to really try and help all those families um, so I, I don't have the data, but I do think anecdotally that we see, you know, all kinds of people. I think that um, if you go back to sort of the comments about the schools, um, I think that there isn't a system at schools. I think that there's some very strong individual schools with individual people. And clearly um, you got one, right? You got a terrific school where your child um, can flourish there. But I would say that what we really need to work on is developing a system of care for these kids so that you have, you know, their primary care doctors, their psychiatrists, the children's mental health centers and the schools all working in combination to to support these special kids. So I want to touch upon a little bit about the report card that the CMHO uh, recently released. What was the intent of the report card? And can we talk a little bit about the information that you published in there? Was it a wake-up call? Was it a just a state of the union? I think it was a wake-up call. We, um, I, I only started with CMHO in July, and a lot of our members had talked about wait times. And, of course, I'd experienced personally huge wait times. So I set out to collect them. They'd never been collected before in the province, and I set out to collect them. And I really focused on kids with significant mental health issues. The government had made some investments around... Um, 
uh, sort of kids who didn't needed just a couple of instances of counseling. And so I knew that those kids were seeing um, therapists faster. Uh, but for kids with significant mental health issues, um, you know, anecdotally, there was long wait time. So I set out to collect them, and I was actually quite surprised with the findings that throughout the province, um, there was so many kids on wait lists. And our report demonstrated there was over 6,000 kids on wait lists. And then I built a, a model to forecast, you know, given that every year everybody was reporting increasing demand. Um, I measured that, and it was 10% per year. So if you combine the wait list that, that uh, we had today with this demand factor, what would happen is that we would double the number of kids on wait lists in 2016, and that was just enormously surprising. So to me, it was really important to call the government's attention to the fact that this has to change now, because if we don't intervene now, we're just going to have more and more kids on wait lists, and those kids end up in hospital rooms. Interestingly enough, um, we were also working with the Canadian Institute for Health Information on a report called, it's a very dry title, so I apologize, <laughs> Child and Youth uh, Mental Health Disorders. And it was all about the utilization of hospitals by kids with mental health issues. And they showed that there was a 48% increase in emergency room admissions for kids with mental health issues in the last six years, and a 37% increase and kids in inpatient units across the province, or across the country, pardon wow. me. Huge numbers. And at the same time, every other kid issue, so, um, you know, any serious cancer issue, um, uh, chronic issue with kids, actually the rate of hospitalization decreased in the same period by 13%. So if you think about that, mental health issues are going the opposite direction. So my view was, okay, you've got a problem here, government. You've got lots of kids visiting hospitals. You've got lots of kids in children's mental health centers waiting for care. Um, we have to solve this problem together, and we have to build a system of care for these kids. And we've got to put the right capacity in place along the system. I have a question for you and, and then an interesting observation. Does the government not collect these statistics? I mean, that's what they do. I mean... I don't know if this is what eHealth Ontario was supposed to do, was gather all of these statistics and start running trend analysis and things like that. But why did it fall to CMHO to gather these statistics? Well, I would say in children's mental health centers, the government really hasn't collected a ton of data. It's hard. There's a number of, you know, there's close to 400, I think, uh, agencies providing um, children's mental health care in the province. Um, in adult mental health, there's, you know, equally, I think, um, same volume of agencies as well. So uh, trying to pull together all this data has historically been very difficult for the government. They are making investments to do that, but it's slow. So, you know, I uh, really felt that we really needed to collect this data. And so we ran it, went out and got it ourselves. Um, certainly, um, the information on the hospital usage is easily to, easy to obtain, yeah. so they would have had uh, access to that. Uh, but for the community sector, data is harder to find. Wow. I, do you think a lot of it, Kimberly, is that there's still this mindset that if a, if a child is sad, a child is down, a child is rambunctious, that it's oh that's just a kid being a kid it's not that they're depressed it's not that they have adhd it's not that they have a mood disorder rather they're just a child finding their way in life do you think that's it or like you know the people look at it still that's the byproduct possibly of a dysfunctional family 
I think that um, that people are seeking treatment for all kinds of reasons for their kids, um, and I think youth themselves are now sticking up their hand and wanting to get treatment. Um, I think that parents are getting more attuned and more educated on what are the signs of mental health issues. But I think actually the biggest trend we're seeing is there's a, a really good program rolling out across um, the school boards, and it's called School Mental Health Assist, and it trains teachers and administrators as to what are the signs of mental health issues mm. and then what to do, which is to refer them to a children's mental health center or primary care for assessment. And so I think that what you're seeing is that those teachers, instead of saying, you know, Johnny's a bad kid from a bad family, uh, are saying, oh, you know what? Maybe Johnny's got a mental health issue. And so I, I think that's a terrific trend. I think educating all those um, teachers about this is, is going to be foundational in building a system of care. I think that the big issue, though, is that right now when they identify Johnny, they hit wait lists. And so for a teacher who's dealing with maybe a very aggressive kid in a classroom to uh, to have to deal with that without any help for a year is really going to be hard for them to bear. I think one of the interesting things to to talk about is you said make that investment now because obviously it's a smaller investment now versus a larger investment in the future. But that doesn't also take into to, to account um, some of these people with mental health issues get into crime or misbehave. So there's a real cost there to the justice system and you know, jails and prisons and things like that. But there's also a very real cost for caregivers who have to now take extended sick days, disability to care for their loved ones when there's this wait time, which is growing ever longer all the time. Yeah, I think that um, where we've articulated the costs um, occurring by having kids sit on wait lists is just where you said. I think that you'll see those those kids sometimes end up in the youth justice system because some of them might be quite aggressive and 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 not know how to handle that. Um, you see some families under tremendous stress and parents leaving uh, jobs to care for their kids. Sometimes that ends up with a child welfare, child protection issue. You see the schools spending a lot of money supporting kids who have these significant issues. You know, you mentioned EAs and yep. um, um, other supports that are in school. So um, I think that you see a variety of costs spent across systems um, uh, on these kids. So, you know, treating them first to me makes a lot of sense. But there's a longitudinal argument as well. Uh, 70% of adults who have mental health issues uh, have said that their symptoms started when they were a child. And we know from research that if we intervene early, that we can change the trajectory uh, of the disorder for many of the the, um, the youth involved. Um, and that will produce significant savings in the long term. Um, you know, Providing mental health supports over over a whole person's life is very expensive. There was actually some really interesting research done called the burden of mental health illness. And what this researcher did was compare the costs to caregivers, to, this, to government, um, of people with mental health issues versus cancer versus infectious disease. What they found out was that for mental health disorders, it was one and a half times the burden uh, for people with cancer. And I think it was, and I hopefully I'm not misquoting, I think it was eight times the burden for infectious disease. So, you know, it makes sense for the government to invest in children and youth because they can avoid much longer term support of these individuals over their life. Right, which has a higher cost in the end. Absolutely. So, Kimberly, for anybody listening, um, and 
today, especially parents that have either a loved one that they you know may have a, a mental health disorder of some sort, or suspect, or even teachers, counselors, the whole nine yards. Uh, we got a you know a, a really cool cross section of listeners. What is the best way that they can learn more about the services that you provide? Also, how they can contact you, and the protocol, I guess, which you guys have in place. I would say that you could go to our site, kidsmentalhealth.ca, and there you can. There's a location finder, um, and if you punch in your post, postal code, uh, you can locate the uh, center that's nearest you. Uh, one of our member centers um, that produce that provide very high level of children's mental health treatment. I think they should also take a look at the report card that's on our site. Um, it's on the front page right now. Um, and, and maybe even if they feel passionately about this the way that I do, uh, you know, print the report card and go and talk to their MPP about it. Um, we have to keep this as a high-profile political issue because that's how things change. Absolutely. And I, I think um, there's a wonderful article that you did in the Ottawa Citizen that you can find online over the weekend. And uh, you've got some wonderful resources as I'm looking on the site, just about information resources, as well as being able to find a, a member agency. And uh, I know the member agencies are always looking for help as well, whether you're a board member, a volunteer. Um, that's, a, that's a really tangible way of getting involved and, and helping the community back out. Absolutely. So children's KidsMentalHealth.ca is the website. Thank you, Kimberly Moran, President and CEO of the CMHO Ontario, for coming in and talking to us today. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you raising this issue and helping us really make it uh, a high-profile issue for the government. Well, it absolutely is, and it affects a lot of people, including me. More Matters of the Mind right around the corner. Stay tuned. You're listening to Listen Up Talk Radio. Buying or selling a home, condo, or investment property may be one of the largest transactions you'll ever make. It's important to gather as much information as you can, and preferably from experienced, successful professionals. When it comes time to make your move, call the Mulholland Ross Real Estate Team with Keller Williams Real Estate Service at 416-230-8500 or visit www.realestatetoronto.com. Whether you're making your first move or selling your much-loved family home, the Mulholland Ross Team offers over 26 years of real estate sales and service across the GTA. Listen every Sunday at 4 p.m. here on Radio That Doesn't Suck to hear the team share advice and information that will assist you with your personal wealth through real estate. Questions or topics you'd like to see covered? Email info at realestatetoronto.com or call the Mulholland Ross team at 416-230-8500.
back to Mental Health Matters with Dr. Peter Sacco on radio that doesn't suck.com and rtds.ca. Welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week. And what matters most to us is that we, as we started last week and we told you before, we now have, we'll have each and every week on our show somebody who I consider partner, somebody I consider a great organization, and somebody that, an organization that I think is doing so much for so many people, not only in Canada, the United States, but around the world. That would be Abuse Hurts. And with us now is Ellen Campbell, who is CEO and founder of the Canadian Centre for Abuse Awareness. Hello, Ellen. How are you? Hello, Peter. I'm good. Thanks so, thanks so much for having me on your show. So, Ellen, we had, we've always in the past had Sanderson laying on. Sanderson's always uh, been kind of like our brother on the show. Mm-hmm. So I guess you're going to be like our sister, so to speak. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> we'll have you and I believe Helen will join us occasionally. So we'll have Ellen and Helen, our sisters. So I get, we asked Sanderson back in the day when we first had him on, oh gosh, two years ago, I believe, what, you know, what got him involved in Abuse Hurts, the, you know, the Center for Abuse Awareness. So what is your story in terms of what got you involved with this awesome organization? Well, I'm a survivor myself of childhood sexual abuse. And like a lot of victims, Peter, I ended up with a very destructive life. I've had three husbands and two abortions, and I ended up in the psych ward. I was suicidal. And um, by the grace of God, and I mean that seriously, I ended up getting some therapy and starting to my healing process, which, of course, as you know, is a long process, and it's up and down. But uh, when I got into a relatively healthier state, um, I bought a recovery bookstore in downtown Toronto. It's the first of its kind, I think, in certainly Ontario. And that got me interested in the whole area of recovery, and I did the first national conference for adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And to my surprise, we were sold out at over 300 people, and I thought, wow, I thought this was just me. And, of course, uh, we did three uh, one, one year after the next for three years. Um, and the another point I want to make there is the first year we had very few men, and the next year, again, not too many men back then. We're going back 22 years. Um, but I was very committed to also working with men and helping men. And out of that, those conferences at my bookstore, I founded the agency, but never expecting it to grow like it did. I, I really just started it in the basement of my house. And Sanderson was the original chairman of the board. And when Martin Cruz committed suicide, I guess about 17 years ago, Ken Dryden and the Toronto Maple Leafs got a hold of us and, um, you know, wanted to help us and raise some money. And that got us out of the basement of my house. And and of course, the issue is so huge. I say it's like cancer. If it hasn't affected you directly, you know somebody. So over the years, we've just grown. The need has grown. Our programs have grown. So now we service about 200,000 people a year just right across Canada. And of course, a lot of them right here in the Ontario area. And we have many programs for both men and women. You know, as I look at your, your profile on the abusehurts.ca page, I'm, I'm struck by two things. I'm struck by 
um, well, well, it's not exactly a, the right term, success, because you've grown and you've, you're doing all of the wonderful things that you do. But on the flip side of that, it's, it's incredibly sad that you have to exist. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's just so many, and you're saying the numbers are astronomical now that there's so many people. And when you started, I'm sure you said, I'm the only one, this is the only one that's ever happened to. And then, as you said, when you attended the conference and so many people came, it's just grown astronomically. It is, and I'm sure, Peter, you realize this too. It's not going away. I think probably the internet porn, child internet porn, has certainly made it worse, no question. And um, and I think a lot more people are coming forward. As I said, originally, only a few men came forward at those conferences. And we've done, in the last couple of years, we've done 16 conferences with Shelley Chernelsky with the OPP. We've done a joint uh, conferences with them for men and almost every one of those conferences peter we were sold out well they were free but we we had to shut down i think toronto we had 400 hamilton we had 300 now those weren't all just the victims it was the frontline workers working with them the therapists and the police and everyone else but i get more calls for help from men than women now so men are finally coming out and speaking about their abuse but so I think that, again, just it, people are just coming out more and talking about it. It's always been there. But I guess, you know, now that more and more people are coming forward, certainly as the Sheldon Kennedys and the Martin Cruises come forward, you know, it's removing the shame for people to come forward and talk about it. So it affects everyone. It affects the whole family, as you know, Peter. It's, it's a family situation. Oh, absolutely. And to follow up with what, you know, Todd had just asked you, I just want to ask you because and I, Sanderson and I, we've chatted about this before, actually over dinner. And I remember even talking with um, Teresa Cruz when she was hosting uh, Living Clean, Living Well, and then back in the day when Glenn Allen was hosting the show. Right. Do you feel, and you know, and it, it, it's almost like an oxymoron that abuse is too bloody accepted in society that it's almost like well it's a norm that mm -hmm. it just it goes on and when people hear about it they're not how should we say getting upset about it getting overly concerned about it because a lot of them are thinking to themselves hey <laughs> i've grown up in this environment this goes on all the time this isn't mm -hmm. any different so do we have that kind of like passe, laissez-faire attitude, that, well, as long as it's not happening to me, um, why should I be concerned? I think so, Peter, and I think also you made a good point. Uh, was it Peter that asked the question? I'm not sure. Well, it was Todd um, that asked it. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, that um, women, for instance, that, are, that we get, for instance, we service over 100 agencies, and a lot of them are shelters. And we have one of our programs called Delivering Hope, which is sponsored by FedEx, where women come in here every Monday to get their hair, their makeup, their nails, new clothes, new Danier coat, purse, the works, um, clothes for their children. Um, and then, of course, we have our product where we distribute, oh, I don't know, over 5,000 items a month just in new bedding and housewares and everything as women are coming out of shelters. Um, the women, I would say probably well over 90% of them grew up in domestically violent homes or alcoholic homes or homes where abuse was the norm. So that's normal to them, and they end up 
you know, marrying their fathers. I mean, it, it, they're so conditioned to it and desensitized that they, for a lot of, a lot don't even realize the gravity, even if it's just emotional abuse or verbal abuse. Lots of times people don't even understand or realize that, that they are being abused. It's, you know, you raise a valid point because I I have in my own life, I've known people that have been abused by a particular type of person, a a father figure, and uh, there were certain rules and and ways that you interacted with that person. And wouldn't you know, once they moved out and started their life and, and started their romantic life, they gravitated towards the same type of father figure. And again, I don't know if it's seeking something that was missing or if it was more complex than that, but they would actually, and then the same behaviors would perpetuate. Now, do, do some of your member agencies get into counseling so that people can identify some of those signals that they're sending out or some of those behaviors that they lapse into? Yes. Um, we don't do frontline counseling ourselves, but we support uh, two men's groups in downtown Toronto, for instance. So these would be the guys from Maple Leaf Gardens that are still coming forward, but then other men that have just called us um, get into counseling or in our group. And then certainly the women that come in here from the shelters, they provide counseling as well. But, you know, I look at my own life and how long it took me to heal. And it um, it's not something where you go to counseling for a few months and then it's done, as I'm sure Peter could, right. you know, comment on. Um, you know, it's almost like a learned lifestyle. So it's it's it takes a long time. But I, I think um, I, there's a, and something, again, Peter's probably familiar with is the Imago, um, the Imago therapy that we, 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 we pick somebody that has the same wound as our, someone in our, our father or our mother. And we, you know, we, we pick that same person again. There's a great book called Getting Love You Want or Keeping Love You Fine by Harville Hendricks. And it, it really speaks a lot to this picking the same people and until like I kept picking unhealthy partners because I wasn't healthy so you're as healthy as your partner I would never pick those people now now that I've come through my recovery and you know but when you're wounded you find wounded people and and so of course then the children grow up in that environment so it it really is cyclical it's like breaking the cycle Uh, for instance my daughter went into therapy, and she's broken the cycle in our family. Um, but she went through one marriage before she actually got into you know therapy herself. You, you know what, Ellen, I'm glad, I'm glad you bring that up because there's a concept that we use, I guess, within the, the field of codependency, which basically says that today's catchers are tomorrow's pitchers, which is mm-hmm. a, a, a basically, you know, for those that are not familiar with baseball, it's a baseball term, not a cricket term, folks, sorry. Um, mm-hmm. So with that said, you're right. Um, it's, a, it's a cyclical thing that occurs. And as you said, if the kids are witnessing this growing up in the environment, then usually you know, they're in the abusive back, upraising, Girls witnessing this are more likely to go and pick the abuser guy, whereas guys witnessing this are more than likely to go out and abuse the female. Because exactly. that's what, where, which is more interesting now that we're seeing Ellen, is that where you're seeing spousal abuse 
or parental, you know, you're watching the parental abuse where the mother, the wife is the abuser and, you know, beating on the husband psychologically and possibly physically. We're now seeing guys going out and picking abusive women and tolerating it because they're afraid of the stigma of coming out and saying, hey, I'm in an abusive relationship with a woman because society still has that, you know, well, look at how much bigger you are than her. How can she be abusing you? And yes. I, you know, I just want to throw that out there because I'm sure you see that, you know, coming across abuse hurts. I do. And as a matter of fact, we don't, most of, because we are a recovery resource center, but it's usually by phone. But I did have someone about a year ago actually come to my office and he really was, he broke down crying, and that's exactly what was happening. His wife was physically abusing him. But the other thing, Peter, that I think a lot of men deal with is he knew if he left, his wife and his dog were going to get it. So he stayed in to protect his children. I guess a lot is what women do lots of times, too. So men, I think, are almost in a worse situation because, as you say, who's going to believe them? And then what are their options? They don't have a shelter to go to. And uh, it's a different dynamic altogether. And yet I'm seeing that more and more, uh, wife-to-husband abuse. I've, yeah, I've been aware of that myself, where there's the emotional abuse, and there's also occasionally physical abuse as well. So as the as the CCAA, abusehurts.ca, it's, it's physical and mental. I mean, the physical scars sometimes heal generally they do heal but it's that it's that underlying uh tr emotional trauma that takes as you said in your own journey it doesn't mm -hmm. take a few months it takes years and and does it does it really involve looking backwards somewhat trying to discover triggers and and, and places you've been to help you and allow you to move forward oh yes absolutely and i I think I learned, for instance, uh, and maybe your listeners just might give them a little bit of comfort, because I've been running this agency now for 22 years. It was 22 years yesterday that I started it, and, and yet my last husband, I was in an emotionally abusive marriage. And here I'm running this agency. Now, this was 10 years ago, but still, I had been in it for 15 years, and yet emotional abuse is so subtle that it, you know, he was a policeman and I just kept making excuses for the way he was talking to me and, you know, the way he was treating me. Everybody around me was saying, we don't like the way he's talking to you or speaking to you. And that, so if it can happen to me, and I've been at it for a long time, it can happen to anybody. Now, I've done a lot more healing since then, but that just shows you how deep the scars were because I had to go to a really deep, deep level again to go even deeper into my own wounds. So I think emotional abuse in some ways is the worst kind because I think the scars are deeper and you don't know it's happening to you. Whereas you know if you've been sexually abused or you know if you've been physically abused. And I think far too many people just sort of uh, dismiss it and say, forget the past, move forward. But I don't think you actually heal and learn until you look back at least once very deeply Yes. And then determine, okay, what went wrong and how can I prevent that from happening again? Exactly. And I think the other thing, too, that, Peter, I'm sure you would agree is one of the things that stopped my healing was I didn't want to stay with the pain. I wanted to, I would just, any time a painful thought would come up and I should deal with it, I would just 
you know, get real busy. I was a workaholic. That's how I dealt with it. Some people drink, some people do sex, whatever it is. Mine was work. Well, when that last incident happened with my ex-husband and I went to that really dark place, I actually stayed with the pain in, in, a, in a safe place, actually with a therapist. But I allowed myself to stay with the pain to work it through. And I think that's why my healing got stopped a lot of times. As soon as it started to hurt, I would shut down and not want to think about it. You know, you, you don't die. There's a painful, there's, it's a painful process, different levels, but you don't die. But that's where the freedom and the release comes when you can finally face it and let go of it. And you really do let go of it. Oh, absolutely, Ellen. I think, you know, people find their own ways of coping, and unfortunately, a lot of people will, you know, choose the bottle or drugs. We only have a, a minute left. Um, mm -hmm. Before we let you go, um, we'll have you guys, obviously, uh, we don't get done today. We'll have you next week and week after and week after. You guys mm -hmm. are in the middle of a move, uh, so if people want to learn more about you and also learn about the move, can you just quickly tell us about that? Sure. Well, we right now we have a warehouse full of product, which we give out to uh, mostly women, but also men, if men are coming through transition. Um, but it always bothered me. We'd give brand new bedding to a woman, but she wouldn't have a bed. So we're moving to a larger warehouse in Aurora on Connaught Avenue. If they go to our website, they can find out more information, abusehurts.ca. And um, we will be uh, also providing furniture. We'll be taking furniture, uh, providing it for people coming out of, you know, difficult situations. And um, we're going to have a grand opening in September, and we'll let you know about that. But um, we're quite excited about the, the new move, but it's, it's a huge process right now. It's a good thing I'm a visionary, and if I was a detailed person, I would have never done it. But because I'm a visionary, I said, oh, let's do it. <laughs> and now you should see our warehouse here and everything. It's pretty, pretty crazy. Now you have to do it because you said you are going to do it. Well, I'm too far down, you know, it's like being pregnant. It's too late now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we look forward to, uh, to, you know, being on your show. I look forward to being on it, Peter. And thank you for all your support. And I, I just love your new book, the, the most recent one with the birds. And uh, I, I, any way we can support you, you know that uh, we will. Well, thanks so much, Ellen. And, yeah, it's all in the name of abuse, uh, stopping mm -hmm. it, stopping bullying, and making the world a better place to live. Thank you for joining us, Ellen. And for people who want to learn about Ellen, Todd will have everything for Abuse Hurts on our website. Yes, I'll be doing the blog post shortly, so check up with it at talk-radio.ca. More matters of the mind right around the corner. Stay with us. You're listening to Listen Up Talk Radio. Whatever is on your mind, definitely contact us. You can contact me on my Facebook page. You can contact me by email or, as some of you are doing, through Twitter. And I just want to point out, definitely tune in next week as we have yet another tremendous guest. His name is Hubert Crouch, who is a trial lawyer and author who's got a tremendous book out called 
Pride for No One, which looks at religious extremism, freedom of speech, and women's rights. So how extreme are we? And as Hubert will talk about, has freedom of speech kind of gone a little bit too far? Interesting topic. Uh, definitely looking forward to that. You can catch us every Wednesday at 8 p.m. at talk-radio.ca. Of course, uh, if you miss the show live at 8 p.m. Wednesdays, you can hear it the next day on demand podcast. Download it to your device. Take it with you wherever you are, including the subway. We will catch you right back here next Wednesday at 8 p.m. on Listen Up Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco. Reach him on his website, petersacco.com, or you can reach him through Listen Up at talk-radio.ca. We really thank you for listening. Reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash listenuptalkradio, on Twitter at at listenuptalk. We'll catch you next week. You don't need no papers. That man is not your man. And that's why I'm...